From Bowling Green State University and the Institute for the Study of Culture and Society, this is BG Ideas. I'm going to show you this with a wonderful experiment. You're listening to the Big Ideas Podcast, a collaboration between the Institute for the Study of Culture and Society and the School of Media and Communication at Bowling Green State University. I'm Jolie Sheffer, Professor of English and American Culture Studies and the Director of ICS. As always, the opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of BGSU or its employees. Bowling Green State University and its campuses are situated in the Great Black Swamp and the Lower Great Lakes region. This land is the homeland of the Wyandotte, Kickapoo, Miami, Potawatomi, Ottawa, and multiple other indigenous tribal nations present and past who are forcibly removed to and from the area. We recognize these historical and contemporary ties in our efforts towards decolonizing history, and we thank the indigenous individuals and communities who've been living and working on this land from time immemorial. Today I'm talking with Dr. Ryan Ebright. He was a spring 2023 ICS faculty fellow. Ryan is an associate professor in BGSU's College of Musical Arts. He has a PhD in musicology and his research centers on opera, song, and intersections of music and drama. His ICS fellowship project is on the flourishing of American opera after Einstein on the Beach. Thanks for joining me today, Ryan. Thanks for having me, Julie. So you are uh, an associate professor of musicology. Could you start by telling us a bit about your particular like academic and professional journey sure. and how that led to this particular project? I would say that my journey with musicology probably started as an undergrad. And my journey to opera in particular also started less as an undergrad, more as a graduate student. So I came into college actually as a business major, and I did major in business, which explains some things which I'll talk about down the road. But I also was fascinated by music. I had done musical theater in high school. And so I thought, oh, I'll take some music classes, some music theory class and learn what, you know, what music is about. And I found that I really, really enjoyed it. My background is as a singer. And so I continued to sing in choirs and take music lessons. And then I thought, oh, I'm going to major in music, which my parents were devastated by. So I promised them that I would also continue my major in business. So it all worked out quite happily. And then my senior year, I decided I wanted to pursue this a little bit further. So I decided to apply for graduate school as a performer in vocal performance. And I was accepted at the Peabody Conservatory, which is where I went to do a master's in vocal performance. And during my first year there, I thought about how much I enjoyed, I've always enjoyed history uh, and how much I enjoyed learning about music history in particular. And so I thought, well, I will add a musicology master's as well. And so I did that. And my research there was on the songs of Franz Schubert, 19th century, early 19th century, Austrian composer. And then I took some time off from school after my master's. But during that time in grad school is when I became interested in opera in particular. And so then when I eventually went back to school for my doctoral work, it was sort of a natural interest for me to fall into opera as a field of study within musicology, particularly because when I was at Peabody, I had done a lot of opera, particularly working with living composers and a lot of contemporary opera. So my interests sort of went in that direction. As far as the sort of specific research area of contemporary American opera, I can point to sort of two formative experiences that really pushed me in that direction, not counting the work that I had done with living composers. One was I took a fascinating class in graduate school with Tim Page, who was a critic for many years in New York City and then with the Washington Post and eventually he taught at USC. But he taught a class there on writing about music. 
which which I wasn't very good at to be if, to be perfectly honest. But one of the things, one of the exercises that he did that I sound, found so fascinating was this was 2005 and John Adams's third major opera, Dr. Atomic, premiered at San Francisco Opera in 2005. And one of the exercises that he did for the class was bring in four different reviews of that premiere performance, one of which was his. So we could sort of look and see how critics were writing about music, what things they focused on, which I that really sort of sparked my interest in course, writing about music, but also the music of John Adams, the operas of John Adams. And then when I was a doctoral student down in North Carolina at UNC, I was asked to give a sort of pre-opera lecture for a group that was connected to North Carolina opera. They were doing a performance of Philip Glass's Les Enfants Terribles. And in preparing for that lecture, I found that there were a lot of sort of conceptual and aesthetic similarities between what Glass was doing in some of his operas some of what Adams was doing, and I thought, oh, this could make a sort of cohesive topic to explore. And so my initial journey into contemporary American opera was really focused on the operas of composers who are who have been associated with the musical minimalism movement. So Philip Glass, John Adams, Steve Reich. You alluded to the fact that you came in through business at yes. first. So could you talk a little bit about how these different disciplines, because really you're talking about within opera, right? There's already a kind of interdisciplinarity because there's libretto and there's score. And then you're talking about writing about music and history. And you're also talking about business. How do these sort of come together in your work? Yeah, that's a great question. The way I think about how my business background has informed what I do and I should say, during the time that I took off from academia between my master's and my doctoral program, I was working for essentially like a startup company. So I was putting my business degree to use. But I would say that my experience in business informs the kinds of questions that I ask and the things that I'm interested in. So one of the things I'm particularly fascinated by in studying contemporary American opera is how you actually produce it because it is such an expensive and complex art form that is sort of always seems to be living this sort of very precarious, have this very precarious existence within uh, American culture. So thinking about the economics of it, thinking about how it gets funded and actually produced, that interest has led me into looking a lot at the ways in which artists work with different institutions and that relationship between the individual artist or artists and the institutions that are responsible for the fundraising, but then also the production and distribution, if we want to think of it that way, of these artworks. Most of us sort of know generally what opera is, but a lot of folks don't know much more about it. Sure. And I suspect that many of our listeners may think of it as a sort of old-fashioned kind of genre. What would you like listeners to understand about contemporary American opera? Oh, that's that's such a great question, because American opera has this really sort of tortured relationship with the musical past. Opera has always, since it was formed in like around 1600 in Europe, it's always had this weird relationship to the past, right? So when opera is formed in Italy, it's authors who are sort of thinking about what did Greek theater look like, and this sort of leads them into opera. I'm, I'm being a little bit reductive, but... Of course. There is this sense that opera is always looking at the past, and American opera, when it starts to really flourish in the mid-20th century, they're, they're sort of asking similar questions. Is there a uniquely American opera? 
opera, of course, had been around, has been around in the United States since, I want to say, the, at least the early 19th century. Lots of traveling troops, primarily putting on European operas. Towards the early 20th century, we start to see some early efforts at creating a sort of uniquely American operas. And then this really picks up in mid-century with the culture boom that happens after World War II. We see a lot of American composers creating what they think of as uniquely American operas. The period that I'm looking at in the mid-1970s, this question sort of coming up again, what is opera? And, and this is a, a discussion and a debate that we see playing out in institutions like the National Endowment for the Arts in the 1970s, which I alluded to in, in my talk last night. But there is this sort of question of, is opera a predominantly musical art form? How indebted is it to the sort of European heritage? And the sort of short story is that many opera creators and administrators, impresarios, are saying that opera in the United States is something different. It is not just a musical art form, but a theatrical art form and deserves to be treated as such. And in fact, it's it's part of a broader spectrum of music theater that also includes the American musical theater, the tradition of Broadway. And so they're seeking to sort of create this relationship between opera and musical theater and basically create a much more expansive understanding of what opera is. So to, to circle back to your question of what is opera, I would say that opera most often is a story told through music that uses the voice. So it's, it's, it's a theatrical piece that involves music. By the time you get to the 21st century or even the 21st or even the 20th century, there's so many different variations of opera and you see pieces that may not even involve voice but are still being conceived of as opera. Or you'll see people that are arguing that Hamilton sort of is arguably an opera. But so opera has started to become this sort of umbrella term that encompasses many different facets or reflections or iterations of this sort of musical or music theater impulse that artists have. I know that one of the key transformations in American opera that burst on the scene, it's, it felt like it sort of entered a new era, was Einstein on the Beach. Could you talk about what made that such an important inflection point in the history of American opera? Yeah. So I would say the the biggest effect that Einstein had was was actually sort of less its actual performance at the Met and more what it actually sort of represented in terms of a new type of theatricality, a new type of musical language that are combining and are being shown at what is considered to be the sort of pinnacle of, of Western art in the U.S. because by virtue of being in New York City, the sort of center of culture, we can argue about that, but we won't. But so, so it's, it it's really becomes this sort of mythologized moment that represents for many people a rebirth when in fact it played for basically two weekends in November of 1976. Not that many people saw it, probably not too many opera people. It was probably more crowds that were interested in what Philip Glass was doing and what Robert Wilson were, were doing and coming to the Met. So it comes to represent something sort of greater than what it actually was at the time. And so by the time you get to, say, the early to mid-1980s, when there is this movement to bring avant-garde and experimental artists and composers into the field of opera, looking back then to the mid-1970s, Einstein seems to be the sort of starting point for that. And in fact, there's this great anecdote that the composer Laurie Anderson has that I think she was talking to John Schaefer 
saying that at least within these sort of downtown arts communities in New York City, Einstein on the Beach was actually quite influential insofar as everybody wanted to write an opera after after this. And she said you'd be walking down the street and say, hey, what are you working on? Oh, I'm working on an opera. Oh, how's it going? How's your opera going? But it really takes a f it takes some time before opera institutions are sort of willing to embrace the experimental ethos of these artists. And for folks who aren't familiar with Einstein on the Beach, what are some of the things in the way it sounds or the way it looked that really marked a change? Because I think yeah. folks probably have a general sense of opera, right? The big voice, right. the like kind of lush use of orchestra and voice. But what was different about Einstein on the Beach? And even melodrama and yeah, yes. this sort of extreme emotions. Philip Glass and Robert Wilson like to say that that Einstein is is an opera by virtue of the fact that it has to be performed in opera houses because it is a it is a big production. But some of the ways in which it does not fit with traditional operas, for one thing, it's extraordinarily long, even longer than most operas. So it takes place over about four and a half hours and there are no intermissions. And it's a series of several acts that are connected by short knee plays, but it doesn't have a story. So it's non-narrative. It's just sort of a series of scenes that are sort of obliquely reflective of Einstein's life. It's not really about Einstein per se, other than the fact that the chorus is often dressed in the sort of characteristic Einstein suit. And then there is a, a solo violinist that has the Einstein, you know, mustache and wig and things. But it, it's it's almost sort of like a meditation and it moves it moves very, very slowly at times. There is a lot of repetition, both in terms of the musical language that Philip Glass is using. This is sort of, I would say, the the tail end of his purely minimalist phase of music, which uses a lot of repetition. And it's sort of pointing towards his later musical language, which is has a much broader use of, of harmonic motion, which actually works quite well to sort of create a theatrical dramatic structure, even in the absence of text. There's very little text in Einstein. There's some spoken text. Most of the singing is choral singing that involves numbers like one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, or solfege, do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, ti, do. That's pretty much what the chorus sings. And then there are spoken bits and then quite a lot of dance, which fits in with Robert Wilson's background. He incorporated dance in these sort of long productions. So there aren't really any arias, arguably save one that is just on an awe. And it's not telling a story. The ensemble, the instrumental ensemble that is used is Philip Glass's ensemble, which is amplified keyboards, some winds, and sort of very, very loud. So in many ways, it doesn't follow almost any of the, the traditions of operatic production and creation and performance. Following on Einstein and the Beach, could you talk to us? Some of your work is on Meredith Monk. Tell us a little bit about her and how her work kind of follows on some of the space opened up by Einstein on the beach? Mm, that's a great question. So Meredith Monk is someone who is also creating these large-scale works as an artist working in downtown New York City. So Robert Wilson, who is the director for Einstein on the Beach and Philip Glass's collaborator, he's known for these sort of extended theatrical works. He had one work called The Life and Times of Joseph Stalin that took place over, I think, 12 hours his piece, Ka Mountain, took place over two weeks. So like, you know, really sort of extreme durations within theater. Monk is not working with durations that extreme, but she is working in sort of these extended formats. So 
one of her early pieces that is a sort of site-specific piece. I think I mentioned it in my talk last night. Let's see, I'm trying to remember the different pieces. So Juice is her is her theater cantata that takes place first in the Guggenheim Museum, and then a second act takes place maybe a couple of weeks later, but then the third act takes place another two weeks later at her loft. And so she's also working on a sort of slightly different time scale. But anyhow, she is also making these sort of large music theatrical pieces that involve dance, that involve movement, that involve minimal text. Robert Wilson's also involves, I would say, minimal text, but not in the same way. And so I would also add another connection between sort of what Robert Wilson is doing and what Meredith Monk is doing and other downtown artists. One thing that's very interesting is that in order to support their art early on, they each create their own institutions. And this is something that, you know, the more experimental composers are doing as well, starting their own ensembles. So Robert Wilson has his Bird Hoffman Foundation, which is actually the company that is responsible for producing Einstein originally. And Meredith Monk's House Foundation for the Arts also is sort of responsible for fundraising for these large projects. And so part of the story here about what they're doing is, you know, where is their support coming from? How does an artist find the resources that give them the sort of time and space to sort of develop their, you know, their own artistic languages? Hmm. We're going to take a quick break. Thanks for listening to the Big Ideas podcast. If you are passionate about big ideas, consider sponsoring this program. To have your name or organization mentioned here, please contact us at ics at bgsu.edu. Welcome back to the Big Ideas Podcast. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Ryan Ebright, a spring 2023 ICS faculty fellow and a faculty member in the College of Musical Arts here at BGSU. So Ryan, for this project in particular, what were your what are your methodologies for your research? And how are you thinking about using archival research? You know, you're talking about living composers, other forms of qualitative research you might be doing, discussion of the kind of institution building and the production side. What's the scope of the project and what are some of the methods you're using? <laughs> yeah, the scope is always tricky because, you know, you always have to sort of narrow things down. So for this particular project, you know, there's a, a huge amount of opera that is produced basically in, in the U.S. from the 1970s on. And so in terms of the sort of parameters of my project, I'm really interested in operas that are doing something that are or attempting to do something different with the genre, whether that is reconceiving of how we think of narrative or the relationship between different musical languages within an orchestra, how race is represented on stage, the ways in which bodies and voices are are sort of theorized and used, how space is constructed by sound. So lots of different ways in which opera creators are sort of playing with the idea of the genre and sort of attempting to play with it, to sort of create different experiences for audiences. That's how I've limited what I'm doing in terms of the case studies that I've chosen to try to sort of use those to illustrate this broader narrative about how American opera has transformed since the 1970s. As far as the methodologies that I'm using, I'm, I'm always deeply interested in what archives can reveal, particularly about the relationships between artist and institution that I alluded to earlier. One of the challenges in working with 
operas by living composers is that there are not always obvious sources of information that you can go to. And so, in fact, that's one of the reasons why I sort of turned initially to focusing on institutions, because they at least had some repositories of, of documents and, and other materials that I could sort of look through and, and see what sort of story they told. Some composers have established their archives, because most of the composers that I'm studying are now in their 70s or even 80s, so they're sort of the, the elder statespeople of the field. So as much as possible, I do try to look at whatever archival sources they might be. Some composers have been very generous in giving me access to their own archives when they are not yet sort of institutionalized. So Anthony Davis, for instance, was very kind and let me sort of rummage through all his materials at his office at UC San Diego a few summers ago. So on the one hand, I have these archival materials, which do tell part of a story, right? The other thing that I really find rewarding as a researcher is talking to artists. Now, many of the composers that I'm talking about, they've given literally thousands of interviews at this point, and their stories aren't likely to change, to be quite honest. So one of the things that I actually find really enjoyable is talking to basically everybody else that was involved in the production. So whether that's the performers or the conductors or the administrators, the people who commissioned the work, librettists, designers, I, I think that helps to create a richer narrative. And it also helps to sort of decenter the great artist, so to speak, the sort of what used to be called sort of the great man history of art. That's definitely not what I want to do because opera is such a fundamentally collaborative genre that does involve so many people. So I'm really sort of, I would say my two main methodologies, I'm interfacing archival studies and what that can reveal interfacing that with a sort of oral history that I'm constructing through these interviews with various opera practitioners. Yeah. I'm curious, you mentioned Anthony Davis. Yes. So we've talked about Meredith Monk's work. Mm -hmm. Could you talk a little bit about what you see as some of the key innovations in Davis's work? Yeah. So one of the things that that Davis does musically, you know, he's he's coming out of the, I would say, the tradition of black experimentalism in music. Some would call it jazz. And, and certainly he's coming out of the jazz tradition, but he's also, that term has also been used in such a sort of reductive way. I mean, you can look at the history of the Pulitzer Prize in music, for instance, to, to sort of get a sense of the way in which jazz has often been sort of marginalized musically. Also, the NEA certainly was part of this as well. But so Davis is bringing a new musical language into music theater that is sort of drawing on the traditions of black experimentalism by incorporating improvisation within theater. So improvisation is not something that has typically been a part of opera, especially within the sort of orchestral ensemble. One thing that Davis does with his first opera, which is X, The Life and Times of Malcolm X, is he incorporates his own improvising ensemble, epistemy, within the sort of larger orchestra. So there's this interesting sort of interplay between orchestral forces, but then these improvising musicians. So I would say that is part of what he brings to opera that is new in the 1980s. But then another thing that he brings to opera that is new is his explicit direct engagement with, with race and with African-American experiences as sort of reflected through the biography of, of Malcolm X, which is how the opera is constructed. It sort of starts with the murder of Malcolm X's father, Reverend Little, when Malcolm was a child, 
and then basically moving through key moments and key transformations in his life up until his murder in the Audubon Ballroom. So having a black narrative on stage and black performers, there's also this sort of key social and economic element where Davis talks about, you know, he was giving, in creating this opera, he was creating roles for 28 black singers who might otherwise be quite limited in the 1980s even though the opera field is sort of slowly opening up to black performers, there are still limitations sort of placed around what kinds of roles can black performers have. And so an opera like X is is sort of expanding the possibilities for for black opera performers. A key element of the ICS Faculty Fellowship Program is community engagement. So what does community engagement mean to you generally as a musicologist and in the work that you do, and what kinds of things were you engaged with as part of your ICS fellowship? Mm, that's a good question. So, you know, I I always love finding ways to talk about my work to general audiences. One of the ways that I have tried to do that over the last several years is really through writing. I've been fortunate to be able to write several pieces that are sort of geared towards non-scholarly audiences in public-facing venues like the New York Times, New Music Box, which is an online sort of new music-oriented magazine. Also, I had a piece for The New Yorker where I wrote about Anthony Davis's ex right after he had won the Pulitzer for Central Park Five, and I said, you know, this opera should be done again. And and I was sort of very gratified to see that, in fact, it was done again, not because of me, I should I, I should add. And then more recently, I've been writing for a more opera-specific audience, but certainly still a general audience for Opera News Magazine. And one of the things that I find rewarding about that sort of public engagement is that I think there is a lot of value that a music historian, the, the types of perspective that a music historian brings. Many of the pieces that I do do have some sort of historical angle where I'm using that sort of historical perspective to make a case for something about operatic practice. So, for instance, one of the pieces that I that I really enjoyed writing was about a production of Beethoven's opera Fidelio, which was being performed by this small company called Heartbeat Opera, and it was being reimagined sort of for the 21st century and set in the American carceral state, so set in American prison using Black and other minority artists. And one of the things that I tried to do in the sort of preview article that I wrote about that was making the case that Beethoven's opera Fidelio has been subject to all sorts of changes musically, dramatically, ever since it was created in 1813, 1815. Beethoven himself had three different versions of it. And so I, I guess my implicit argument in a piece like that is sort of arguing against this sort of purist idea of opera and showing that opera is actually you know, quite flexible and quite capacious and able to sort of speak to present day issues. How do you think forms like musical theater and opera can contribute to the public good or do contribute to the public good? I think this is true of many arts. So I don't know that this is specific to opera or musical theater, but I like to think that one of the most important things that art does, and, and opera certainly, is it gives us the opportunity to sort of encounter something that is unlike us or, or sort of to sort of experience the world differently or see the world through a different lens, even if it's for a short period of time and sort of 
reorient our perspective, our framing of the world. Certainly, I think that the recent number of operas by Black composers and artists are a wonderful sort of addition to bringing new artistic voices into the field that offer sort of new experiences and new perspectives that historically have not been represented on stage. I, I think that because opera is, has so many parts to it, the sort of music, the movement, the visual elements, the, the verbal elements, there are so many different ways in which opera can connect with those of us in the audience. I know that many of our students and their parents yeah. are worried about kind of what a career in the arts or the humanities will mean. Like if you major in yeah. English, in yeah. music, what's the future? Given your own experiences where you do have both a background in business, you worked in, a, you know, for a startup, but you also have this deep love of history and musical forms. Any advice for kind mm. of following your passion and making your way in the world? I mean, one of the things that I think about for students coming out of, say, coming out of college with a humanities degree or an arts degree is that there are so many different ways of applying those fields to whether that is in business or in the arts. There are many different ways of applying the sort of knowledge that you've learned. So for instance, you know, coming into academia with a business degree and falling into this career as an opera researcher, you know, I certainly didn't take my business classes thinking like, oh, this is definitely going to shape, you know, how I approach the study of this field. But certainly you can be quite creative in thinking about how does this experience, you know, how can I apply this elsewhere? I think that's one of the wonderful things about the humanities and the arts. You know, they are, they are so broad, broadly applicable. But then I would also say that for students that have sort of studied art or music or humanities or say writing with the intent of being a sort of producer of art, I would also add that there's a lot of value that they can add if they don't go into the sort of those types of careers. There are so many other things that are part of an art world that are crucial to its functioning. And so certainly there are many, many careers within, within opera or within writing that are necessary to the functioning of those fields. And the sort of knowledge and experience that you gain with a degree in the arts or humanities can serve those types of roles, whether that's editing, whether that is working in development or outreach or any other types of roles that arts organizations need to continue. One other question. So for folks who are, you've piqued their interest in opera, what are some ways that they can sort of t dip their toes in the water and start to learn more about this form? Well, certainly most operas these days, you can, a lot of them you can experience via recordings, both video recordings and audio recordings. I think there's no substitute for live theater. There is something quite magical about it. One of the things that's quite wonderful about the U.S. is that there are so many opera companies, and this is part of what I've studied is the sort of flourishing of opera companies that really starts in the post-World War II period and then sort of takes off in the 1970s and 80s. So chances are there is an opera company near you. I would also add that there are 
there is opera production at almost every college and university has some sort of music theater, whether it's musical theater, whether it's opera, they do have some sort of some sort of music theater performance that is usually offered at least once a semester. So those are different ways of getting involved. I don't think that you necessarily need to start with the classics. I would actually say that starting with a contemporary opera can be a superb introduction to the art form because frankly, it's sort of the people that are creating these operas are, you know, they're still living. They are living in the same world that we are living in and sort of thinking about the same issues that we are thinking about. And oftentimes hearing the world that we hear and sort of finding ways to translate that musically and dramatically. I will say as someone who was a college student or a recent grad when I attended my first opera, I think one of the things that really comes to mind is it is such a multi-sensory experience, right? That it, it isn't just someone singing with a really big voice, yeah. right? It is an ex a spectacle, an extravaganza of music and visuals and dance and all of that. And so I would certainly echo what you said that like, there's nothing like experiencing that. And I think it is different from other forms in that sense. Yeah, absolutely. There's a little bit of almost all the arts in it. And I would even say that film has become something that many opera creators have have experimented with as well. So it really is this sort of wonderful, beautiful melange of mediums. Thanks so much for talking with me today. This has been a pleasure. Great. Thank you, Julie. Listeners can keep up with ICS by following us on Twitter and Instagram at ICSBGSU and on our Facebook page. You can listen to Big Ideas wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Please subscribe and rate us on your preferred platform. For more information or to suggest a guest for a future episode, visit bgsu.edu forward slash bgideas. Sound engineering for this episode was provided by Marco Mendoza and Brendan Akatora. Research for this episode was done by Iswat, Janad, and Joe Elia.